as you mark song number 520. We'll, of course, use that a bit later in the service this evening. And I hope that you have your Bible still open to that text in Ecclesiastes. We'll be continuing our study in a series of lessons on, on that Old Testament book tonight. Ecclesiastes, and we'll come particularly to portions of chapters 2 and 3 this evening. I hope that as we've studied that so far, we've each been reminded of the question that's at the top of this next slide. Is life worth living? And I realize that as often as a question like that can be raised, certainly it's an exceedingly basic one. And haven't we found so far that among all the books of the Bible, surely all in one way or another at least lead to some thoughts about that question. But no book like Ecclesiastes casts an almost exclusive spotlight on that question and its answer. So far, isn't it true that we have found the answer that Solomon appears to have immediately asserted is no. In light of the monotony of life, in light of the ongoing appreciation that he tried all the things we studied some two weeks ago on Sunday evening. He tried wealth. He tried wisdom. He tried substances. He tried control over people. He tried it all, and he concluded in verse 11 of chapter 2, all of it is vanity and vexation of spirit. So, so far, it looks as if the answer is no. It isn't worth living. It doesn't pay rewards. But yet the thing that I would encourage you to notice, that answer has been from a singular perspective, under the sun. That little prepositional phrase is used many times in the book, and it reminds one of the viewpoint that appears to be under the sun. When we raise our eyes and look from a different perspective, as we've already noted by way of a few hints, the answer is going to be a very different one. Tonight's lesson is going to, in fact, take us into chapter 2, the latter part of it. And in fact, beginning in verse number 12 is where we're going to take up in just a moment. If you would be turning to that, and we'll go ahead and turn to the next slide. I thought I would mention a disheartening set of facts based on, on chapter 2 and use that as a springboard for one of the next observations. Verse 12 says, And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that, becometh after, that cometh after the king, even that which hath been already done? It would appear that Solomon, after the experimentations that began chapter number 2, all those things that he tried, including wealth, substances, intruding control over people, building lots of things. You'll notice verse number 12 appears to suggest after some of those things. Well, you'll notice one of the next appreciations is this. He came to some conclusions. Maybe they've troubled you and me as well. Maybe they have been observations that we've often made. I entitled this one, Disheartening Facts About Wisdom. One of the things you readily notice, verse number 13 says, Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly. There's no question. He did make conclusion that wisdom is a better thing than foolishness. Wisdom is a better thing than mere folly. More will be said about that in a moment based on the observation of Ecclesiastes. But this point was immediately troubling. 
when you and I say that living in a way that's wise, living in a way that's directed to those things we know that's time-tested and valuable. But have you ever pondered the fact that those do not prevent you from experiencing bad things? I've listed a few examples. You may note this with me. The person who tries to live wisely. A deer can run out in front of you the same way it can run out in front of a fool. The same person who in fact tries to live based upon the character of wisdom. You'll get tooth decay and cavities just like the person that's a fool. Solomon reached this conclusion. The same things happen to the fool that happen to the man that's wise. He noted that seems a bit disheartening. You would think that perhaps in the interest of wisdom, maybe one can choose that way of life such that some of these things wouldn't happen. But he said it just isn't that way. And yet I've saved maybe the grandest one for the last one. We're about to notice in a moment, death also happens to the wise man the same way it happens to the fool. Could I draw your attention to verse number 15? Then I said in my heart, as it happened to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever, seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man? As the fool. You know, as you and I give our intention and we give the thrust and focus of our life with the attempt to live wisely and with the attempt to live in, tho in those ways that are time-tested and valuable, the sure thing is we're going to die just like the man that's a fool that doesn't give his attention to what's wise, that doesn't give his heart to what's valuable. We're all going to meet the same fate, at least in that regard. That thought troubled Solomon enormously. By wisdom, this is a disheartening fact. No matter how wisely I live, I can't avoid death. And no matter how wisely I live, I can't avoid some of the same things that a fool will experience. The troubling features of all those things you'll notice on that slide. I've listed in the Bible, isn't the testimony of this very direct? In 1 Kings 11, verse 43, the very man of whom we're reading, Solomon, his death is recorded. Any degree of wisdom that he had was not able to put off and even prevent the character of his own death. But if you, in fact, regard him with some element of wisdom, notice in 1 Kings 13, 24, there was a young prophet. Well, he too died. And later in 1 Kings 21, there was a man, Naboth, who chose to strive to remain loyal and faithful to God's law concerning land. And yet that old wicked woman, Jezebel, ultimately brought about his demise, brought about his death. And so here, the wise, as well as those that were less wise, they all died. Well, surely those things trouble Solomon to the point Let's close that slide with those ideas at the bottom. Here are some proper viewpoints on wisdom. First of all, you and I would say this has been a bit short-sighted so far. Wisdom is better than folly. 
It is better than foolishness. Not the least of which is for the reasons we're now about to state. Clearly, wisdom can make one's life better here than the life of a fool. I somewhat quickly passed by those points earlier, but living wisely is not the same as living foolishly. And maybe our parents, our grandparents, or other influential people in our lives have encouraged us. Don't live that way. That won't turn out good. That'll put you in bad company. That will bring into your life those things that are hurtful. Well, those elements in wisdom perhaps lead us to appreciate those passages like Ephesians 5.15. That very idea is why the New Testament encourages all of us to live wisely. There is something to be said for walking circumspectly, for walking wisely, and may you and I be always intent to do so. But maybe one last point is this. It is possible to share wisdom with the next generations. You and I can teach it to those that follow us, Wisdom is not just an arbitrarily unuseful thing. What you and I learn, we can bequeath to another. Books can be written. Word of mouth can be shared. That which is wise truly can make a difference in someone else's life besides our own. Now later in the book, Solomon seemingly is going to make some notes about that point, but at least for now. He simply makes the observation, wisdoms can't seemingly remove from us even the things that a fool would experience. One more thing, though, to note is this. As you and I close that slide, what about some disheartening observations about wealth? That's the next thing he mentions. May I invite you to consider verses 18 and following. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. Ponder well for just a moment. You and I provide effort and labor, sometimes many, many hours a week. As a result of that, we accumulate things. We have provisions in life and quite often extensiveness in land or possessions or wealth. Here was an observation that troubled Solomon. I can't take any of it with me. He said in verse 18, I've got to leave it to the one that will be after me. Now maybe that's been something that's troubled you or me. Have you ever known someone perhaps who with care and frugality... They labored for decades, and they pass away and leave a fortune behind to somebody else. Isn't it interesting, sometimes those to whom they leave it don't treasure it the way that they did that worked for it. And they'll squander it, they'll waste it. Have you ever known a son or a daughter whose parents bequeathed to them a small fortune, and they use it in a way dad and mom would never have dreamed of? They use it to purchase what dad and mom would never have given a penny to purchase. You see, they value it very differently. Those kinds of ideas are now going to appear in the very mind of Solomon. Verse number 19, And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. 
the last four words, words say it well, this is also vanity. Isn't it interesting that here was a man who lived about 3,000 years ago, and yet his thoughts are as new and as pertinent as maybe yesterday's newspaper. Has this been something that's troubled all of us? Has it been something to cross our mind? I work all my life and leave it behind to somebody, maybe even my own family, who won't use it the way that I consider to be wise. You know, the word that Solomon used, I leave it to a fool. You'll notice these examples. This happened to Solomon identically. I mentioned a moment ago, his death is recorded in 1 Kings 11. Who was the son of his who took control of the things that were Solomon's? It was a boy named Rehoboam. Now, you and I may not remember a lot about him, but this much the text of the Bible declares he wasn't terribly wise. In fact, the kingdom was split because of his foolishness. Ten of the tribes rebelled against him, and he would not surrender in wisdom to the thoughts of what was appropriate. Solomon's estate, as vast as it was, ten of the tribes revolted and all that wealth was lost. May I again say that something we should carefully consider, all the years of our work and all the years of our extended frugality, and we may end up leaving all of that to somebody else who won't appreciate it, at least the way we did, and who may well use it very unwisely. This troubled Solomon to the point where he again loudly echoed the sentiment, is life worth living like this? Let's note one final thing. Verse 22 highlights a third observation. Not only can it well be that that wealth is enjoyed by someone other than me, and not only is it the case it may be squandered by somebody, look at what verse 22 says. For what hath man of all his labor, and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? Isn't that a great question? What is it about this wealth and the accumulation thereof? Solomon said, I've seen that so many individuals in the accumulation of that wealth, they've lived a life of misery. They've worried about it. They have given themselves over with extensiveness in terms of failing in other ways to the point where, he says, they have gotten no enjoyment out of it. Have you ever known someone like that? They work themselves virtually to death, accumulating maybe a sizable estate. But all the while they had all of that, they seemingly enjoyed it very little, if any. It brought them no happiness because they were always so worried about it. We've already learned in a previous lesson that money and things like that aren't wrong by themselves. If it comes to the point they rule us, it's crossed the line. For those reasons, chapter number 2 closes like this. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? In essence, Solomon says, Who can affirm this truth any more than I can? 
I've had more money than anybody else. I have had more wealth and more opportunity than anybody. I'm telling you, make sure to enjoy the blessings God has given you. Don't overlook them and don't neglect them. Don't look only at the glass being half empty. Appreciate it being half full. For verse number 26 says, For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight, wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail, to gather and to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before him. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. The interesting thoughts on that point lead us to conclude that slide with again that better viewpoint concerning wealth to appreciate that which we have as a gift, a rich provision from God. Certainly we would ask that we would strive to be good stewards of it and to use it appropriately. All of that will usher in chapter 3. May I ask that you note with me there's really a significant shift in viewpoint as we transition into chapter 3. I've tried to describe this new viewpoint in language like this. So far, the primary observations have been negative. Life appears not in the main to have been worth living. Chapter 3 is going to be a new viewpoint. The answer is not going to quite be the same now. Our view won't just simply be under the sun. Beginning in verse 1, to everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. As you and I pause at the end of verse 8, we perhaps remember a famous song I think it was by the birds many decades ago that was based on the words identically to that song. As I recall, it was exceedingly popular. You'll notice on this slide, may I say, here's the new viewpoint. Rather than looking upon the monotony of life, look at what verse 1 says. There is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. It's not merely under the sun anymore. It's the understanding that from the perspective of heaven, there is an orderliness to our existence. And that orderliness is highlighted in the ways it's now revealed. There's a time to be born. There's a time when you and I entered our existence. But you'll notice that that wasn't an event that isn't followed by this next matter. There's a time to die. Now, you may appreciate that the natural order of things will bring about our death. There's a time to die. That's an absolute appointment. Hebrews 9.27 says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. You'll notice the next pair he mentions, though, were these. There's a, 
that death, as we think about in relation to our life, now notice in the plant kingdom, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. Whether it be a garden or whether it be some other extensive agricultural crop, there's a time to plant, but there is coming a time of harvest or else there's no reason to plant it. The cause and the purpose for which it was planted. Note the next pair. A time to kill and a time to heal. Maybe we at first sight consider that one troubling. You mean there's a time to kill somebody? Notice it didn't necessarily say that. You'll notice this time to appreciate in terms of killing. You and I know well there are times when the cessation of animal life is a thing good for us in the provision of food. But there's a time to heal up an animal that's also, of course, ailing and maimed. I might also say, in relation to that, there's a time to break down and a time to build up. Maybe you and I have often thought too about that. A couple perhaps buys a home and they begin to renovate, turning it into what they want landscaping and maybe they build a new stairwell inside and they move walls and they put in place that which they prefer and a few decades later they'll sell that house and the new owners are going to remake it all over again tearing down that landscaping moving walls and stairwells there's a time you see to build up and there's a time to tear down that regularity makes us come to the next one a time to weep and a time to laugh. The natural order of things will bring moments of sadness, shedding of tears. That's going to happen. It's a part of our existence. It ought not be viewed as monotonous. It provides those moments of meaning to our life, those major thoroughfares of moment, whatever those cases may be. But isn't it true that that time to weep will also be enmeshed in times to laugh. Aren't you thankful God gave us the capability of laughing? You know, it takes the consideration of smiling to appreciate the frowns. Those moments of hurt, you see, they are buoyed upward by those moments of happiness and celebration. We've all known them. It's a great thing to celebrate and rejoice, isn't it? Look at what's next. There's a time, you see, to mourn. I'll quickly say, there are times not just of sadness, but times when your spirit is overjoyed with a characteristic of hurt. Overwhelming. That word mourning is a strong word. It doesn't just mean sadness. It describes a great amount of grief. Those times are going to come. But it's followed by this one, times to dance. Now that's the King James rendering. The idea behind that is moments of great jubilation, moments of celebration. You see, that's what they did in those Old Testament occurrences. Do you remember when Miriam and the women in Exodus 15, they danced at their release from Egypt and the Egyptians that were dead in the Red Sea behind them. Dancing was the way they celebrated. There will be times of celebration for us. Look at what's next. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A similar idea to that one we noted earlier. 
a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Times in which we share moments of hugs or at least closeness, but also times, of course, when it's best not to do that. Maybe distance, maybe other things will cause that to be improper. A time to get and a time to lose. I'd suggest most of the time we like the idea of getting, but there's a natural order to the arena of life in which we're going to lose. May we never forget that, not merely as a matter of monotony, but as a matter of the orderliness with which the circumstances of this life are governed. In fact, over in chapter 9, later he's going to describe the elements of chance. Time and chance happens to everybody, be we Christians or not. And may I suggest in that light, some of these features are going to be just the matter of the occurrence in life. Look at the next pair with me. A time to keep and a time to cast away. Furthermore, a time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. Now you'll notice in that one too, we must keep in mind, as we even learned this morning, love is a critical part of the Christian life, and yet there are things that we all hate. And furthermore, there are things that people do that we greatly, greatly hate. We hate what they do. Well, may I say, that again is a part of serving the God of heaven, isn't it? Finally, a time of war and a time of peace. I've said all of that to say that as Solomon's viewpoint was now switching, he didn't look upon these as monotonous anymore. He seemingly saw in them the wisdom whereby these prescribe the circumstances of order in your life and mine. Isn't it any wonder then? Verse number 10 concludes it like this. I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He hath made everything beautiful in His time. Do you hear Him? He's made everything beautiful in its time. There's a regularity concerning the timing of God in which a beauty is to be seen in anything, be it getting or losing, be it war or peace, be it mourning or celebration. That verse number 11, of course, was the one that was read earlier tonight. And that's the one that really I would invite us to focus on just a little bit longer because the sense contained in it is truly fantastic. Verse number 11 of chapter 3 again reads like this, "...He hath made everything beautiful in His time. Also He hath set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end." There is one part of that verse which I would encourage you to note could be rendered a little bit better, it seems to me. It's that phrase that reads like this, He hath set the world in their heart. The actual Hebrew text more carefully reads, He hath placed eternity in their heart. Now, likely to you and me, the word world carries a far different sense than the word eternity. He has said eternity in their heart. I wonder what the inspired Solomon meant by that. 
here are some thoughts I would wish to bring before you. You know, when God made Adam and Eve, and you and I read about their allotment and their existence in the early part of the book of Genesis, you and I remember that they had access to a tree of life, and with that access, they could live perpetually in the flesh. They knew well about the consideration that you and I would call eternity. They'd never die. They were able to live in perpetuity in the existence that they then had. But they sinned. They partook of that which was forbidden by God, and in so doing, they lost access to the tree of life. And since that time, humanity has not had access to that. But yet Solomon said, God has placed eternity in their hearts. I'd like to suggest to every one of us, it seems to me a rather profound thought, and of course it comes right out of this verse, God has placed in the heart of every human being some element that links that person to a sense of eternity. It's as if we are unwhole and there is a void absent whatever it needs to go in it. There is something about eternity in their hearts. It can only be filled with that which is eternal. It can only be satisfied with that which is from God because God is eternal. Nothing in this world can fill that void. Nothing. Nothing in this world, regardless what it is, can completely fill the sense of what that linkage requires. God has placed eternity in their hearts. For that reason, you'll notice, the closing part of this verse highlights this reasoning. So that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. You know, the human family has wrestled and struggled, I suppose, since the days of the children of Adam and Eve, trying to understand eternity. Our mind can't fully wrap around the appreciation of something that never ends, something that never undergoes any change. We live in a world that is changeable. Every day seems to bring about changes, and we're accustomed to adapting to them. You know, one of the things that we know in mathematics is this concept of infinity. Mathematicians struggle with it, and we can write it on paper, but what does it really mean? He's placed eternity in their hearts. I'd like to suggest that the human family longs, yearns in the deepest sense for the absoluteness of eternity. As those in God's family... We are trying to make preparation for heaven, for we know that place truly is eternal in a good, ceaseless way. He's placed eternity in their hearts. Some final thoughts on that slide are other developments in the Bible in which this new viewpoint seemingly was so grand. It's really later in this chapter. Beginning in verse number 15, "...that which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been." And God requireth that which is past. Don't you love the sense of that? Doesn't it remind us of Jeremiah 6 verse 16? Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. This is, this is Solomon's version of that. Seek those old paths. 
That's what God requires. He's placed eternity in their hearts. For that reason, you'll note these things. Solomon quickly reached this conclusion, verses 16 and following. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment. That wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Solomon said, death is coming. I see that now, and judgment is coming too. We don't really need to wait thoroughly until chapter 12. I know chapter 12 is going to be one of the high water marks of the book. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep His commandments. It's the whole duty of man. But even already, Solomon could say, death is coming. This new viewpoint was beginning to take hold. And that new viewpoint said, I know there's coming a day of judgment. How wisely must we live under the understanding, of course, that eternity has been put in my heart and yours. Shouldn't we then live in a way we can enjoy that full eternity? Understanding it'll fill all of that which we long for so deeply. Absent that, we know we're not going to enjoy eternity for in hell. We're not going to enjoy it at all. Let's conclude our lesson then like this. We have seen primarily in this lesson a series of reflections on wisdom on the one hand and wealth on the other. And we have found that many things Solomon quickly understood, but with his new viewpoint, the monotony was seen as God's orderliness. And of course, as chapter 3 went onward, even the appreciation of death, transitioning to a place of judgment where God will judge both the wicked and the righteous, and He will provide to each that which is the just thing for their lot. He's placed eternity in your heart and mine. Are you and I living in such a way that verse 11 will be an appropriate blessing to us? We cannot find everything out about eternity now based on ourselves. Only what He tells us. Are you living in such a way, and am I, that that eternity will be a blessed thing and a place in which our wisdom will match the provision of God? If tonight there's someone in the audience and maybe you haven't lived in a way that you know you should, you know it's not an insult to walk down this aisle and to make confession of error, and it's not an insult to ask people to pray for you. We'd be honored to do it. If you've never become a Christian, though, that won't be, that won't be the thing that God requires. You need to believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and then be baptized. If either of those things would be the need of your heart and life tonight, the book of Ecclesiastes shouts, Yes, life is worth living, but only if you live it with eternity in your heart. Only if you live it in such a way that you appreciate that that must be directed toward the eternity that God would wish you to understand. If we could help you tonight to make sure of that, we'd be happy to do it and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.